So this week we are going through chapters 6 and 7. The chapters deal with a number of issues. Um, the first issue being, uh, being surety or a guarantee for someone else. Being ensnared by our words. We're going to look at diligence, the danger of laziness, with the humble ant as our role model. Characteristics of a wicked person, a worthless person, as the Bible will say. And uh, some specific thing that the Bible says the Lord hates. I mean, that should really get our attention. Things that it says, these are things the Lord hates. And that's kind of hard to hear, I think. But we need to look at those things too. And find out what God loves and what pleases Him also. We're going to revisit the dangers of adultery, which we discussed last week in chapter 5. So last week we talked about the Holy Spirit's essential empowerment to keep God's commandments. Again, to be doers and not hearers only. In doing something means that we actually heard it. Didn't just go in one ear and out the other. Temptations that begin smooth and sweet can end in utter ruin and bitterness. And we talked about intoxication. Intoxication. But in a way that had to do with being intoxicated with the love of our spouse and not being intoxicated with the world or with someone other than our spouse, to be completely enraptured with their love and to be continually and exclusively refreshed, enlivened, and fulfilled in our marriages. So let's read in Proverbs 6. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor have given your pledge for a stranger. If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give, uh, give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So what is it to give our pledge, to be surety for another? Surety is kind of an antiquated term, I think. What does it mean to put up security for a stranger? And I think, first of all, we see there's an obvious financial connotation. We're told that it's a snare, a trap that threatens our very life, and that we need to save ourselves in the same way a wild animal may try to extricate themselves from a trap. You know, most traps are illegal in Colorado. Is there anybody that traps in Col here? Some traps are not. I think you can trap on your own property, that kind of thing. But many traps are illegal. And they've been determined to be inhumane in many instances. Not all. So please, that's not what I'm saying. But we've heard those stories of like a coyote chewing off their own leg to get out of a trap. We've heard, you know, these terrible kind of things where they, anyway... But that's the urgency that this is telling us that we need to have. We need to be able, be willing to chew off our own foot to get out of this snare that we're in, basically, to extricate ourselves. And I've, I've heard this taught, this passage taught somewhat in the respect of co-signing alone. And that's one type of surety and can also be a trap. But I want us to be careful. This is not an admonition for us to be selfish or stingy. And there are certainly times we give of ourselves that we are to indebt ourselves even 
for the benefit of others. Now, you, some of you Dave Ramsey people might have exception with that, right? Like, what's he talking about? But we have a clear example, and I'm a Dave Ramsey person too, by the way. I, I totally believe in being debt-free. But there's this, there's this passage where the Apostle Paul is speaking to a man named Philemon in his, in his letter to Philemon, and he says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. He's saying, I'll pay his debt. I will pay his debt. So Paul is essentially indebting himself for him. So, so when we look at that, clearly there's, there's something there. There's those times where God is going to have us be there for somebody else. So I don't want us to take this thing and say, it's, it's a prohibition against us being uh, generous or, or charitable to somebody that's in need. Jesus himself, as we did communion this, this evening, was our ultimate surety and pledged himself for our sake. He took our debt upon himself. What we see is that this pledge was different about, I think, in this passage is that it's done rashly. It's done outside of God's will with apparent pride and presumption. This isn't the kind of thing where it's being done out of love or sacrifice. We get the idea normally um, these types of situations would, would be someone is trying to take on someone's debt in hopes that they can profit from their situation. Do you understand that? That's, that's kind of what this is, I think. High reward, high risk, you know, bail bonds are a type of surety. And that's why we have bounty hunters, because people skip on their bail, and we need someone to go, that's, that's what that is, if you didn't understand what that's for. Business ventures or partnerships, perhaps with an unbeliever or a stranger, could fall into this kind of category. Taking on a debt, essentially, that you're not able to pay, but it starts out... I think, in a self, with a selfish motive as opposed to what we see with the Apostle Paul and with our, with our Lord. The opposite of this would be this model that we see in James. Because we're talking about being ensnared with a promise, with something we've given our word to do, of making rash vows. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know to what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, and this is the contrast to this other section, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. See, it's not what we will, what what the Lord wills. And that's what keeps us safe from these deadly snares and traps. But then we're told, you know, we all sin with our tongue. James also tells us that, that we all have made rash vows in some way that we regretted. The worst thing we can do in that situation is to double down. Solomon is telling us, James is telling us, do whatever you can to get out of that situation. And you know, that takes great humility. This word that it says, um, plead urgently with your neighbor, in my translation, that's a, 
in the Hebrew, that has to do with literally prostrating yourself before that person like the threshold of a door and letting them walk over you. Like humiliate yourself before them to get out of that situation if need be. Some of us uh, that have been in debt, myself included, you feel that desperation sometimes, that urgency to get out of debt. But that's what he's talking about. Don't, don't double down. We saw that with King Herod when he made the promise, that rash vow to his wife's daughter when she pleased him dancing. And he said, whatever you, whatever you desire, I'll give you. And she, she you know, pulled one on him, right? I want the head of John the Baptist. And because Herod was unwilling to be embarrassed of all, in front of all these other you know, people, he went through with this horrific sin and beheaded you know, one of God's anointed prophets, the one who was to prepare the way for the Messiah. I mean, that's how hard he went in on that. If he would have humbled himself in that, perhaps that could have been a crossroads that would have changed his life. But what I'm saying is that's what this passage, when we find ourselves in a situation, whether it's financially, materially, spiritually, do whatever you can to get out. And that takes great humility. It takes really the, God's spirit. And I think that's why so many people get deeper and deeper and deeper into these situations. You hear oftentimes people will say, well, I had to. I had to. Well, you don't have to. God always gives us a way out. Like a wild animal getting out of a snare sometimes, though. It doesn't sound pleasant, does it? It sounds really, really, really tough in some ways. So I hope, I hope that all made sense to you. To me, I was really trying to wrap my head around how that could apply to us today. And there's a, I think there's a lot of different ways, but I hope we kind of get the gist of that. The next passage, we'll just, we're going to zip right down. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. And this is a great passage. A lot of dads will quote this passage to their kids. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from sleep, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest? And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So Solomon, we know from 1 Kings, was a naturalist. We're told in 1 Kings 4, verse 33, it says, He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And here we get this example. It's one of Solomon's observations about how he gained wisdom from this was looking at God's creation, and we look at the ant here. Jesus also used examples from nature to teach the truths of God's kingdom. Birds of the air, lilies of the field, wheat ready for harvest, and even the rising and setting of the sun take on spiritual significance in Jesus' teaching. And I feel the universe is designed in such a way as to draw us to God. In this observation, we see the ant. And all of us is so great because where can you go in the whole wide world and not see an ant? I mean, I think they're everywhere. They're in di you know, different types of ants, and they're just everywhere. We never see an ant just chilling out. We never see an ant just lounging around, watching TV, wasting time. 
You know, they're always busy. They're always doing something. And that's why ant farms used to be popular. I don't know if they still are. But, you know, if ants just, like, sat there, no one would want an ant farm, you know? But they are popular because they're building tunnels, and they're fascinating, right? And we would watch them, and everybody in here probably, or many of us probably had an ant farm at some point. And um, it's their nature. It's what God designed them to do. And it's really the key to their success and survival. I think because of this industriousness, that's why we see them uh, proliferate. I'm using too many big words right now. But that we see them all over the world because they do have this nature of being busy, of being a community, of being, uh, you know, like we're told, of storing up of working. Now I will say, notice the ant does not strive to have to never work again. And I think that's a big thing that we have culturally, right? A lot of us are willing to work really hard for 25 years and then stop and never work again. We want to store up everything we can. And I don't think really, I think what we see here is that the ant is working as it needs to for what it needs, not a whole bunch of excess. And I'm not, that's not any kind of commentary on, on um, retirement, but I know it, that's, that's, an, that's a mentality that can rob our peace, that can rob the assurance of God's daily provision, that if we're faithful to do what he's called us to daily, he'll provide for us just as the ant does. But we contrast that with the sluggard, the one who sleeps, who folds their hands. It's such a vivid picture, isn't it? How long will you sleep? Get up, get up. The folding of the hands seems to indicate a resignation to failure as opposed to rising in faith to victory. You know, that lying down, we use that term figuratively when we give up on something, to lie down. This resignation from God's will we're told, will lead to a violent home invasion. I mean, that's something we normally wouldn't uh, expect, and it's something that seems to kind of come on slowly, but when poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man, and I just picture this really, like I said, this, you know, this kicking in the door when you're least expecting it and, and robbing you and taking everything you have. Now, many other Proverbs deal with the issue of diligence. It's one thing that Solomon, you know, that God's Spirit through Solomon really, really wants us to get a grasp of. And so does the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul is such an apostle of grace. He will rail against any sort of spiritual works to gain merit for God, to salvation to God. But when it comes to hard work in terms of providing our daily needs, he really doesn't hold back. And uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12 is just one of a few passages that, that Paul gives us. It says, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one like ants, to be self-sufficient, motivated, industrious, and successful in what God calls us to. Now again, Paul's not admonishing us to work 
in this extreme way to enrich ourselves so that we can indulge ourselves, he says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. So if you work at some place of work and you're not carrying your load and you're lazy and people are having to come up behind you and clean up after you, that's a bad witness, right? Part of the reason we work hard and contribute at our jobs and try to do the best job we possibly can is for that reason, to be a good witness to the world around us but also just to make the world a better place to live in, right? We need people that do all kinds of things that, that honors God in our work. I mean, whether it's putting tires on your car or, you know, building a house or any of these types of things, that's, you, we, can, we honor God in being excellent at what we do and also to be dependent on no one, right? To be self-sufficient, dependent on no one other than our Lord. And that's his ideal. That's what Paul's telling us here. And I think that's the, the example that, that Solomon has given us through here. And we have a description in the next few verses of this worthless person. And it's a precursor into these six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. But it's, I'll just read. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. He winks with his eyes, he signals with his feet, he points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. And so that's this characterization, and we talked about that kind of in chapter one, of these people that are, that are con men, these grifters, that are looking to take advantage of someone else. And I think the contrast is right before that, as opposed to someone who's working hard, who's making their own living, who's contributing to society, who's being a witness to outsiders. But this is the opposite of that. And then it flows into the next few verses. You know, the first thing we see, the, back up just a second, that crooked speech, that crooked speech, trying to make things sound a way that's, other than what it is, maybe omitting things, um, not telling you the whole truth, trying to suck you into some sort of scheme or something. And, and that's why it's, it's consistent. The next, so again, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And we see the, the connection there, that discord, that um, division that, that that all causes. And that's kind of a hard concept, isn't it? Like things that God hates. Because we, we know that God is a God of love. We know that it was his love that caused him to give his son to die for us. So how does love hate? But if we think about it, it's not really contradictory to say God is the totality and perfection of love, the very definition of love, and also say that the things opposed to that love would be considered hateful to his nature and will. That word hate has to, be, has to do with being opposed to, being an enemy of. God doesn't hate the way we hate because it, 
it affects us in some personal way that bothers us, and so we hate that thing. That's not what this is. It's something that is um, opposed to his nature and will for humanity. And when we see that word abomination, that means it's something opposed to or an enemy of his law. That word abomination, that's, that's what's so opposed to his nature and will, but also opposed to his law and the things that he's spelled out as, for instance, in the Ten Commandments. It has to do with practices of worship that are self-initiated and do not follow his specifications. There were two men in the Old Testament that were sons of Aaron, Nabab and Abihu. And these two priests, they had been anointed by God, chosen by God. But for some reason, and we're not really told why, but they decide to make this their own kind of incense and kind of bring it in their own way and do this own thing, and we know that they died because of that. That was an abomination. That's a type of abomination. But I think what we look in here is this progression in these things that the Lord hates. It starts with haughty eyes, prideful eyes. And when I read that, it has to do with looking down on others, despising others. And that was a big deal in Jesus' time. We saw a lot of instances of that where they looked down on the Gentiles, considered them basically destined for hell, no matter what, hopeless. And there was an element of racism in there, but there was also this spiritual pride that, brought, that made them look down on others to despise others. When you do that, when you start there, it opens up a door to all this other evil that we're talking about. It progresses to lying and deception. This shedding innocent blood, that innocent blood is speaking of children. That's having to do with oppression and violence against children, exploiting those who are weak, a heart that devises wicked plans, plans to profit, again, off the misfortune of others. You know, we've heard those stories where as soon as there's a natural disaster, they have to put out, you know, warnings to people to say, hey, you know, watch out because all the scammers are coming now. You know, these people are waiting for a hurricane or a flood or a fire or something. We've heard you know, so that they can profit off of it. Feet that run to evil. And that speaks of an excitement or even entertainment in evil itself. Being a false witness has to do with not just lying, but lying with an intent to destroy someone. Again, also often for personal gain, but even sometimes just out of hatred or spite. Discord, strife, and contention. You know, the Lord is a God of unity and peace, not discord. God loves his children to get along with one another, to forgive one another, to help one another. And I think if we invert these things, okay, let's take those things that the Lord hates and invert them. Eyes of humility, not haughty eyes. A truthful tongue, not a lying tongue. Hands that protect innocent life. Hearts that make plans for righteousness. Feet that run away from evil. To be a true witness. And one who sows not discord, but unity. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. 
And there's serious warnings throughout Scripture about being hateful towards one another. First John actually connects our salvation and relationship with God directly with that of our brothers and sisters. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And it starts with those haughty eyes, eyes that are prideful and selfish, eyes that are focused on the treasures of this life and see people only as a means to an end, rather than ones who deserve our love and sacrifice, which is how Jesus sees everybody. Jesus sees everybody as worthy and someone who he was willing to die for. And that's how he wants us to see people, not with these haughty eyes. And that's why these are things that God hates, that things that are opposed to his nature in person, things that are enemies of his law. Now, the remaining verses of chapter six, uh, 6 revisit the warnings in adultery. And I'm going to skip all the way down, all the way down, <laughs> in case you were scared. I was, man, last week was rough. That was one of the roughest studies I've ever done in my life. And it's just such a, it's such a sad thing to read the, the consequences from that. But now we read this, this rhetorical question that is, that is absurd in its presentation. And it says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Who in the world would think, you know, who in here likes to camp? You go to a big campfire or a big bonfire. And you think you can just go up and hug it and take it and carry it somewhere and not be burned. You'd be insane. You'd be, you know, no one would, no one would think that. And, and, and the answer should be, of course not. Of course we can't carry fire and not be burned, not be scarred horribly. It's cause and effect. You know, we wouldn't expect that, but, but this is what people do. This is what we do every single day. The word says in Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we fail to believe this, it's like trying to carry a bonfire around in our clothes. We will get burned. It's just the natural and expected outcome. But sin deceives us. It tells us that we're exceptional, that somehow we're fireproof. Somehow we're scarproof. Somehow we can do it where everybody else has failed. Somehow we can handle it. And we've seen so many people just fall for that lie. Now, down in chapter 7, chapter 7 is essentially, it starts out with this, with this warning again to keep my words, to treasure up his commandments, to keep the commandments and live. And then it goes into this story where it sounds like a very first-person account where Solomon is simply watching out of his window and he sees this transpire where a young man, um, let me just read it. A young man goes, it says, like an ox to the slaughter and is enticed by a married woman. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 7, he says, And I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. 
And we need to key in on that. And going to her house, he allows himself later on in this story to be kissed, to be flattered, to hear those smooth words we talked about last week, those smooth and sweet, deceptive words. And then she, she describes her bedroom. She describes the situation. And she paints a picture in his mind of the delight in store for him if he consents. And that's advertising, guys. That's advertising. We watch TV and we watch this car driving down this winding road with no other cars in sight, miraculously. And you can go as fast as you want and every, th- every dream you have and, and all these commercials. This is ab- she's advertising to this kid and painting this picture in his mind. And at last, he's ensnared. But again, it starts with those haughty eyes. Pride that allows him to believe he's invincible. And we probably all felt like that at some point in our life when we were younger. Failing to have a strategy against temptation. Remember, we talked about wisdom as being a strategy, a skill in warfare, in spiritual warfare that protects us and prepares us for these types of situations. Instead, he thinks the rules don't apply to him, despite the throng of the fallen that have gone before him. And I think that's the common theme that serves to unite all these topics that we just race through, I know. But in our pride, we presume God's law doesn't apply to us and there will be no consequences for disobedience. But it's in humility and heeding his word and listening and heeding these warning signs that we find freedom, peace, prosperity, and love. Some of us, myself included at times, also fail to believe the great promises that we have if we do obey. And I don't want us to lose that. It's either or. You know, I'm not, it's not just all these warnings against all these terrible things that might happen to us. We have some amazing promises from God that if we believe and live by, that he promises to bless our life beyond our wildest imagination in this life and in the life to come. And in Romans 2, I'm going to jump there real quick. Romans 2, Paul just lays this out very clearly. He gives this perfect contrast of these two things. It's a little bit longer. But it says, he will render to each one according to his works. Again, we know these aren't works of salvation. The work that that we're talking about is a work of faith and believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior, and that's the context that we're talking about here. But he says, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality. That's what we're seeking, guys. Glory, honor, and immortality. Not our glory, the glory of our Lord. But he glorifies us. He seeks to, 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 um, to lift us up and not cast us down. Bless you. For those who are self-seeking, he says, but to those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. 
And so that's, that's the warning here. That's what we're seeing when we go back to, to Proverbs and we see our father pleading to us, my son, hear my commandments, heed my words, treasure them within you. So let's do a quick review. Putting up security and making pledges. Our words can get us in trouble. Our words can get us in trouble. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil. But once having said, once having found yourself in that situation, humble yourself quick and get out. That's what, I, that's what I'm trying to learn. Don't double down on those things out of some sort of misguided, you know, I have to keep my word. I have to keep my word. Well, a lot of times, where, where is that balance, right? We keep our word not for our own reputation, but for what's right. Does that make sense to everyone? Laziness, ants. Remember the ant, to go to the ant. To resign ourselves to idleness is to invite an invasion of poverty, whether financially, mentally, or spiritually. Things God hates. How we see and treat one another is a sign of whether we are God's offspring or his enemies. And then again, we're touching on adultery. Just as fire is sure to burn and scar, so are the consequences of rejecting God's instruction. But also equally assured is that all who trust in him will be saved. And we have that assurance from him tonight. So, Father, thank you for again for this study. Um, man, we went through some of that so quick. I pray, Lord, that it would just these seeds would just bear fruit in our hearts and we could meditate on these individually as the week goes on, little by little. Just take a little bite here and there and, and digest it and think upon it. And um, thank you that we don't have to do these things on our own strength. Thank you for your grace and for the promise of your Holy Spirit. And um, let us be encouraged tonight we don't need to be afraid of temptation. We don't need to be afraid of falling into snares. We just need to rest in you, Lord. Lord, you tell us that you fight our battles, that you go to war for us, Lord. If and when we commit our way to you. I thank you for this night again, Lord, in Jesus' name.